Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Pottywood. Halloween is over, so I'm not doing any kind of cliched intro this time around. I will leave it just simply as my name is Steve Hesser, and I'm one of your co-hosts, and I'm joined, as always, by... Uh, the slightly deaf because he forgot to turn his volume down during the opening music, Andrew Roger Carson. Well, that was a bit silly, wasn't it? You know, it's since I've been doing it from my laptop, it, it's so misleading yeah. over how different these tones are in my laptop. You've done it a few times now, haven't you? Uh, I know. <laughs> I, know. I, I just fail to learn. Starting me off on the bad road now because yeah. I'm just trying to regain my hearing. It's all right. Speaking of hearing, I've sat down here and I've got the microphone in front of me, laptop over on one side, and I think something might actually be in one of my one of my cups of my headphones. Let me just take this off. <laughs> there is. I thought something was pressing on my ear. It's a uh, what is this? It is a Bira Moretti bottle cap. I've not had that in weeks. How the hell's that got in there? <laughs> Oh my what the God. hell? I thought something was scratching my ear. There you go. <laughs> that wasn't an added sound effect. That no, it was wasn't. really the sound of the cap. A bottle cap. The room. Uh, speaking of sound effects, though, before we do kick off, uh, as we're recording this, it is on the lead up to November the 5th, Bonfire Night here in the UK. So you may hear some idiots setting off fireworks in the surrounding areas of probably both our houses. So if you do hear like a bang in the distance, that'll be what it is. Okay, that, that that'll be the same here. Uh, at the end of the day, we're just prisoners to it. But speaking of being prisoners to it, oh! Steve, let's talk about what's in the fuck me. This bargain bin should have been set on fire and dumped in the North Sea. What's in the box from last week? From last week, yeah. Well, the return to two thousand seven, apparently. Yes, I noticed that as well. Don't think I didn't. We've not had one from two thousand seven for a while now, have we? I know. And joy to the world! Look what we got. Yes, we've got saw light. We've got diet saw. <laughs> saw, but fewer calories. Yeah, it's exactly that, really. You've got a... Um... Can we actually say what the movie is? Yes, it's Captivity. There we go. That might help, yes. Yeah. Captivity, um, starring uh, Alicia Cuthbert, who I keep getting the name wrong. I want to call her Elijah Dushku, even though I know that it's not. not oh, in she the must slightest. get that all the time at Comic Cons across the world right now. Probably. <laughs> It's like you're the you're the girl whose name is uh, is uh, no no that's not me, and she plays a a model called Jennifer who is mysteriously kidnapped and then wakes up in a cell uh, which is all concrete walls and everything and she finds herself at the will of a mysterious serial killer so it's kind of like sore in that regard as the guy wants to play games with her and there's all kinds of torture devices and you know the movie opens with a guy with a with like a plaster mask on his face and something happens and it's not entirely clear but then later on it kind of turns out that it might actually be like acid that gets fed up his nose and then he bleeds out I, I, I don't know, it's never really made explicitly clear what happened to him there's another one that gets acid dripped into a face from a, a shower funnel and and it's it wants to be that kind of torture porn movie, the kind of stuff which I really don't like and mm-hmm. I, I didn't like it when I sat through those Saw films, but I, I'm not a fan of this particular genre and especially not when it's when it's not done as well as so. <laughs> what do you mean, as well as? This thing yeah. was terrible. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I hate shitting on people's mood. And the worst thing is, this is Roland Joffrey. Mm-hmm. This is the guy that directed The Mission, The Killing Fields. Yeah, the, that's the price that at me. I know, The Great Hunger. And I guess this is kind of what's happened to him since he did that. The Scarlet Letter with Demi Moore. Yeah, he's just there. He's, he must have been a director for hire on this one. That's all I can think of. There's no... Uh, co- <sighs> let me let me just get back to the plot before we start ripping oh, it apart. Okay, I'm sorry. I had to get my sadness out. There is a lot of sadness there. I can, I can feel <laughs> there it. Is, there is. Seeping this, through the ether. This is going to be a rough ride, Jennifer. Um, while she's in there, she finds out that there is another guy in a cell next to her. And the two try and work out a way to get out of there. The only problem with it is, 
the cast list is very, very small. Well, like three people. Yeah, there's one, hold on. One, two, three, four, five people of any kind of significance within the main story. The rest yep. are just like the odd extra here and there. And, and all of them act at the level of extremely half-arsed. It's so half-arsed. But then again, everything about this is half-arsed. half-arsed. It, is, it, is a, it is a tensionless, scare-free movie that just it wants to be this deep kind of analogy for like an abusive relationship and and there's there's a bit at the end where she finds a record of not only herself but the other women that have gone through there beforehand and there's notes in this book which is saying step one isolate step two break down her confidence step three do this that and the other and a lot of that was kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, that does sound like what happens in an abusive relationship. You know, you take someone out of the environment, you take them away from their friends, you break them down psychologically, and then you just play with them. It's not that clever, though. No. No. The main twist, and I'm going to do spoilers here, not that I honestly think anybody cares, is that the guy who's in the cell next door... That she porks. That she porks, um, is in on it. It turns out that the actual killer killer is his brother, who is played by the guy from uh, Constantine with the... with the? I, I, he's got something wrong with his eyes. I don't know what... Yes, Pru- yeah. Pruitt Taylor Vince. Yeah. Why, Pruitt? Why? You, what? you are so much better he's than so this. He's so much better than this. He really is. I've seen him in loads of stuff. He was better than this in Identity, for God's sake. No, he's the guy that everyone keeps mistaking for Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah. I can guarantee you yeah, that he's had those two would clash all the time. It's like Dylan McDermott and Dermot Moroni. You know, you just get them mixed up. Elijah Cuthbert and, and Alicia Dushku or whatever the names are. Um, the ones. But it's, it's such a tensionless movie, like I said. And because of how how isolated she is from all the other characters... You just know that he was in on it right from the very beginning. You, I, oh, yeah. I knew that he was in on it before I'd finished reading the description of the movie on the bloody streaming service. Yes. I just took one look at it and went, okay, he's going to be in on it. And lo and behold, he's in on it. That is the, he's like the whole thing is that they kidnap women and then he pretends to be the hero and they record them and uh, stuff occurs and things happen and uh, uh, yeah it's it's frustrating trying to talk about this movie and if you did take the time to actually watch it or you're going to take the time to watch it after hearing this review let, let me just lay it out for you right here there is zero personality on display in no. this movie you don't care a thing for any of these characters when you're supposed to because it is so mishandled. I don't know what kind of financial situation Roland Joffrey is in. He must have needed to pay his gas bill around this time. And he took this movie. He is so much better than this. But this is the problem with like Hostel and Saw and mm-hmm. movies of that kind. They bring forward all of these bargain bin imposters. Right? Yeah. And and this was the equivalent of ordering the Saw box set off Wish. Yes, definitely. You get it is nothing but an ultimate cash in on what was hot at the time and hoping to just score a win, you know, and oh we can make a franchise out of this, whatever. It it's it, terrible. It doesn't even have the guts to kind of stick to its guns really. There's a section where she has a dog and she takes a dog to this club where she gets drugged and then kidnapped. Because obviously she's a model, she has a dog with her. And then she wakes up at midpoint in the movie and she's strapped to a table. Shotgun next to her and a dog's in the cage above her. And she's got a shotgun pointed at the dog. And the killer's got a shotgun pointed at her. And there's a card which says, is it going to be the dog or is it going to be you? 30 seconds. And it goes tick, 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 tick. And ultimately she makes the decision, she shoots the dog. And then... Spoiler. And then, like, about two minutes later, she goes and looks in the bathroom mirror, and it's like one of those two-way mirrors, and the dog's kind of held up from behind it, and then a card is there going, ha-ha, fooled you, and the dog's fine. 
10 quid says that was a test audience is saying, fuck this movie. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, we can't kill the dog. No. Oh, Alicia Cuthbert. Oh, I was so in love with this woman <laughs> when 24 came out, you know, and the girl next door and stuff. And I feel so bad for her in this because she is a lot better. But there is no sympathy for this character at all. No. And what the fuck is going on with her hair? What the continuity mean? of her hair length is ridiculous. I didn't notice, to be perfectly honest. I was too busy rolling my eyes. Oh, look, this is a movie where... It's a movie with a plot with so many holes, I could rinse lettuce in this movie. And what really pisses me off, apart from the fact that Roland Joffrey directed it, Larry Cohen wrote this. Who's Larry that? Cohen wrote Bestseller, the movie I lauded praise on the other week. Oh. He also wrote great horror movies like Maniac Cop and The Ambulance. He even wrote Phone Booth for, for Joel Schumacher. Which is a great film. Yeah. What the hell happened? I don't know. <laughs> like you say, they must have needed the money badly to go for this. Well, apparently there is, um, there is rumour that a lot was kind of changed with this movie. There was a lot more procedural stuff, I think. Uh, a lot more a lot got taken out of it, apparently. Like the cops. They, the the cops kind of yes. show up within last 20, 25 minutes of the movie. They both get shot. Um, yes. I understand they had a lot more in it, and I think they got taken out. And that, would, that wouldn't surprise me, because that's more Larry Cohen style. He loves, you know, the whole police procedural and stuff like that. You look at Bestseller, Maniac Cop, The Ambulance, and Phone Booth as well. Mm -hmm. They're all police procedural in, in dealing with this stuff, which is why this was so shocking. It was like, I can't remember, was this a Lionsgate movie? It was a Lionsgate movie. Oh, well, well yeah. now we know. Right, so basically I think there's been a lot of chopping and, and stuff out of this movie and replacing with a lot of just this, what was working at the time for good movies, which was Saw, and I guess just the all the other stores were just cash-ins as well that no one really called for, but no. you know they they shilled out the money every Halloween for it. Yeah, I mean that became a regular tradition. Come beginning of October, end of September, there was a new Saw film coming out. Blah blah blah. Still yeah. happening now with the Halloween franchise yep. just recently, and we're gonna get more. You know, we're, we're gonna get more and more stuff. We've just had a really successful high, uh, Hellraiser reboot. And I'm sure we're going to get more of that every year now. It's always frustrated me when I was in film school because a lot of people would always say, oh, we're going to direct any old horror or something like that because at least that's going to sell and get us on the ladder. It won't, and no. It doesn't. No. I know so many people who have directed really like terrible, shoddy horror stuff and took the lowest deal you couldn't get you know, scraping the barrel at the American film market and picking it up for pence. Right. I'm nothing in this industry. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know. Well, neither we, am I, but, you know. Yeah. But even I know that you will only get as much as your last paycheck. And if you yes. start devaluing your last paycheck, then your money is just going to go down and down and down until you're working for a pittance, until you're paying someone else to come to work. So, guys, don't do this. Horror movies need to get made, sure, but if you actually are serious about your career and you want to go out there and you want to make these films, for God's sake, make sure that you ask for the money that you want. If you get knocked back and you don't get the part, then fine, but at least you will be able to live with yourself that you actually pushed your your own agenda and thought of yourself first before committing to something which would just see your stock devalue. Yes. And, and to be honest, we are in a kind of golden resurgence of horror at the moment. Mm. This year has seen amazing contributions to horror. Brilliant films. Jonas is talking about it himself on the shows that we've had on. Lots you of know, indie ones as well. Yeah, the independent scene horror is really making great strides. I watched The Night House last night, which was brilliant. An amazing film. Um, is that a sequel to In the Night Garden? <laughs> no, no. But it's just as scary. It is a great time for horror now. And I think I think the torture porn thing is just kind of dying out now. Thank God. I think, you know, the, even Chris Rock trying to resurrect Saw with Spiral just kind of sank without a trace. You know, as soon as it was released straight to Prime. 
and I'd just had my fill of Saw by that point. Hostel had Hostel 3, and then that died a death. You know, Hostel 3 was terrible. And I'm kind of glad to see that torture porn take a back seat now. Yes, me too. And I'm not in a rush to see that subgenre come back. No, no, I'm not. Like I said, I'm not a fan. Yeah, and I think kind of rounding it out on captivity for what's in the box. Yeah. I think this is something we both agree on that probably, what is it, sitting at 7%? Something, something it, like it deserves to be there, you know, yeah. because it, it, it just doesn't try. And I think that's his no. biggest crime. I don't know what that's to do with, like you said, like the test audiences hating bits in the moment to reshoot things. Or if it was just a weak script to begin with and, a, and just a paycheck for the people that made it. Whatever it was, it didn't live up to it. The only real thing that I was ever excited about throughout the whole film is when I realized that the killer's surname is Dexter. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's the only thing that got me excited, just thinking about a much better serial killer. <laughs> Very true. But you know what? It's it's not the only horror film that you have watched this past week. Because no, you actually did follow my advice from the last show. Yes, I did. And watch 30 Days of Night. Yeah. Uh, Josh Hartnett and... Um, and uh, Melissa and George. Melissa George. And the guy that played Baal in the second series of Ash vs. Evil Dead. And uh, mm-hmm. later... Well, you, you didn't like Ash vs. Evil Dead. What's up? No, I just never watched it. Oh. All right. So, I know. Great fun. Watch it. It's brilliant. So, yeah, I, we went into it in detail last week, but if you didn't listen to last week's episode, one, why haven't you? Two, why don't you go back and listen to it? And three, if you're not going to do that, then I'll just quickly fill you in. Town in northern Alaska, over a period of like about a month, there's no daylight whatsoever. Vampires descend on the town and start killing everybody, and there's a few survivors that have to make it through the next 30 days before the sun comes up and all the vampires are dead. Simple. Great little setup, great little premise based on a comic book by, I think it was IDW Publishing, I think. I believe you're right, yeah. Now, I didn't think it was perfect. There were a few little moments, and I'm not sure why it was the way that it was, whether it was reshoots or whatever. But there's a couple of little moments which didn't quite gel for me. Like, um, it happened a couple of times in the movie that they'd leave a place... And then come back to the place to find people gone. Now, the first time that that happened is just after the attack and the vampires attacked the station. And there's a guy in there played by Ben Foster, who's kind of like the, the Renfield for these vampires. Yes. He goes into the town and sets things up and cuts lines of communication and so forth. And he's there going, oh, why didn't they take me? Why didn't they take me? They took someone else. And Josh Hartner's going, oh, no, they took my brother. They took my brother. Why didn't they take my brother? And it turns out he's safe at the diner. But I was just thinking, no, at any second, his brother's going to turn and he's going to be like the Renfield and they've done something. They've been playing mind games with this kid or or they've done something to kind of hypnotize him. But no, it didn't happen. And there's never that explanation as to why he left. Or did I miss that? I don't know. But the That's same never crept up in my thinking, to be honest. Yeah. So there must have been some kind of explanation for it. Probably. Uh, and it kind of happens again later on where they aim to meet at like a major like processing station where like the biggest Chekhov's gun moment of the film comes in the form of a <laughs> of a like a trash compactor thing full of like two rows of mulching teeth and they just rip yeah. anything apart that goes into it. As soon as I saw that I thought, oh there's vampires going in there later on. I was right. <laughs> um but it wasn't quite the movie that was thought it was going to be. I was expecting it to be a little bit more like maybe kind of like your zombie film or um, I don't know, Assault on Precinct 13 or something where they're in like a like a fairly defensible position and then the vampires are trying to get into them and then they kind of like start turning on each other. You know, the, the biggest enemy is mankind or something. But a lot of it is, is very different than what I thought it was going to end up. And they spend time in a attic of a house and then they end up going into going foraging and that goes wrong and then they go somewhere else and then they stay there for a few days and then they go somewhere else and they stay there for a few days i was i was kind of expecting more to happen between the initial attack of the vampires and the final confrontation and it does have a few little bits but ultimately i was expecting there to be a 
another set piece between those two points. But did you enjoy it? I did, yeah. I did. Good. That's all I give a shit about. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you're saying Halloween is just over, but we were recording this the day before Halloween. Mm. The clocks have either gone back or they're due to go back. I don't even know anymore. They're going back. Oh, no, they went back. They went back last night. Actually. See, you, you don't even know. We don't know. We're, that's the state of the UK at the moment. We just don't know whether we're coming or going. We don't even know who's in charge at the moment. God, it could be a loaf of bread, and at least that knows its sell-by date. So, I guess we can at least delve into some anniversaries. We watch them again, all of the time, or we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. And we're back. Right. Anniversaries! Anniversaries! For the last week of October throughout the many years. Now, you would expect horror. Spine-chilling horror. Well, you get one horror and three that are not horror. Alright. But we're going to start off in the year 1982 when First Blood was released. Oh, I, I was trying to preempt you then, thinking, oh, there's the horror thing. Is it going to be Poltergeist? I know that was released about the time. No, First Blood. Um, I I have seen First Blood, or more to the point, I've seen like about the first half hour of First Blood. I haven't seen the rest of it. Well, you know what? If you would have watched another ten minutes of it, you probably would have bought the international rights within five minutes. <laughs> because uh, when people first saw... Uh, first Blood, when it first went to the film festivals, apparently within the first 40 minutes, the international rights were sold instantly. Right. Without even seeing the end of the movie. That's how much they knew it was going to be a hit. But Oh, can you imagine what would happen if it went into and turned into a musical? Oh, no. Well, funnily enough, when we look at the director here, Ted Kotcheff, and hi Ted, just in case you are listening. Hi Ted. Good to see you on Facebook every now and again. Uh, Ted Kotcheff has a pretty good history. He did uh, a really good movie called Waking Fright, uh, which is a hard one to find, but if you do find it, it's rewarding. He also did uh, The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. Not Lenny Kravitz, but Duddy Kravitz. And uh, later on, he went on to do uh, Weekend at Bernie's, but, you know. (laughs) With uh, Tammy and the T-Rex's Terry Kaiser. (laughs) Tammy and the T-Rex's Terry Kaiser. (laughs) Well, the only time we can do a film better is when he's dead. Yeah. So, um, one person who was not convinced about First Blood's chances of success was Sylvester Stallone himself. He was so convinced this movie would be a career killer, which it should have been when he reached Last Blood, to be fair. Uh, He actually wanted to buy the negative and completely destroy it so no one would ever see it. That is your Last Jedi, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It, is. It, it really is. I'm not. I'm not doing it. But the truth is, um, this was the first Sylvester Stallone movie away from the Rocky franchise that was a hit for Stallone, because he had other movies like Fist, Ugh, the Italian and, Stallion, <laughs> God, <laughs> yeah, and uh, Paradise Alley was another one, which was about him and his brother. Armand de Sante. I'm sure I've seen that pairing somewhere before. But I didn't he, know uh, that. That paints Dread in a whole new different light, doesn't it? Oh, it does. I can fully realise now that Judge Dread might be a sequel set years after Paradise Alley when uh, they were both trying to become professional wrestlers. Oh, God. And yeah, it's a movie that sank without trace, and I've seen it, and it truly is terrible. I think they did Nighthawks as well, which I don't think is a terrible movie at all. Uh, it just wasn't a hit. Uh, and it featured Sylvester Stallone in drag. Yeah, worth seeing it just for that. But um, So this obviously created the biggest action hero icon of the 80s, John yeah. Rambo, uh, who has just had so many imitations throughout Hollywood and Turkey as well, just in case you haven't seen that fantastic... Uh, version of Rambo that was shot in Turkey and you can go on YouTube and find it. It is hilarious. But funny enough, you had Richard Krenner, who was playing Colonel Troutman, and he was not originally Colonel Troutman. Oh, who was? 
Kirk Douglas. And Kirk Douglas actually did film scenes as Colonel Troutman and then apparently either left the movie or just had a disagreement and decided to abandon the role. And then Richard Crenna was brought in and obviously that made Richard Crenna a more famous name, I guess. That's what our generation knows Richard Crenna for. Famous enough to repeat the part in uh, Hot Shots Part 2. <laughs> yes, the only other thing you remember him from. Yeah. Also, you had Brian Dennehy, uh, a fantastic turn. You also have a very, very young David Caruso in there, playing one of the oh, police yeah. officers. Yeah, I'd forgotten he was in it, actually. Yeah. And you know what? First Blood is an amazing movie. It really is. Uh, I keep seeing it, I'm like, I cannot believe how great this movie really is. Rambo First Blood Part 2 just really starts getting into the whole superhuman Rambo, and then Rambo 3 is just ridiculously roided off his face <laughs> at that point. What I can't get over to this day, really, is how much of an anti-war film the first one is. Like I said, I've, I've seen like about the first half hour, but I know enough about yeah. it to know that. It's a major anti-war film, and then all of that is undone in the sequel, which is... You know, when you're releasing war toys and a cartoon based on mm-hmm. glorifying war and everything, it just completely went against the the whole concept of that character. And it features one of Stallone's early greatest performances in the scene where he has this breakdown at the end with Colonel Troutman and he tells his story of what he went through in Vietnam and how he was treated when he came back. And it's genuinely brilliant mm. and so convincing. And, you know, the movie ends the way it does. And I think it is a classic movie. Uh, and I think Rambo First Blood Part 2 is it's fun. That's before Rambo just got ridiculous. <laughs> but, you know, it's written by James Cameron. So wow. I'm surprised that, you know, he wasn't going in and, and wiping out loads of blue aliens. I'm surprised the film wasn't like about five hours long. Um, <laughs> it probably was. But there, there was that alternate ending. And I know that you're not big on alternate endings. Oh, yeah, we get shot. No, he shoots himself, which I think is a really nice moment where it's like, I I don't know many movies where the hero actually takes his own life. And I I, I would be very, very interested to to know if I could peek into an alternate dimension, how the landscape would have changed if that had happened. I know that... um... There was also a different ending where Colonel Troutman shoots him. And a shot of that is used in Rambo 4 when he's having this dream. And they use an actual shot from that. I didn't know about the one of him shooting himself. Yeah. Um, But no. Uh, First Blood was released in 1982. It was a huge hit. Thankfully, Stallone did not get his way and destroy that movie because it really is a fantastic movie. And I think if he had... Stallone wouldn't have had a career past Rocky, probably. No. Because it was Rocky and Rambo keeping him going throughout the 80s. And Cobra! (laughs) (laughs) I pray that's in the box. (coughs) Oh my god. That's so bad. Uh, But yes, anyway. um, Let's move on to our next film. We have a horror film next. Ooh, what we got? This is going to... I really wish you have seen this film because it was a film released in 1981, so we're going back a year. And it was a horror movie called Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. I've not even heard of this, let alone seen it. No? No. Okay, well, this was originally supposed to be a theatrical movie, but it got premiered on TV instead. I think it was on CBS in the States, and it played on the UK TV on the then-debuting Murder Mystery Suspense. Oh, good God. That Do you remember sounds... that? No, it sounds awful. Okay, well, basically, Murder Mystery and Suspense, they would just take uh, movies with kind of a horror or thriller edge and just show it. it. It was like a movie of the week, but they called it Murder Mystery Suspense. So you'd have Hitchcock's movies. Uh, Steven Spielberg's Duel was one of them. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing that on it. No, good... And I remember this uh, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. The film scared the living shit out of me. Genuinely, it terrified the hell out of me. I saw it as a kid, and I shouldn't have been up watching it at that age, you know, in the early 80s, when I must have been about four or five, if that. And I have a deep fear of scarecrows ever since. So I have a genuine scarecrow phobia. 
and it is a real thing. You must shit yourself whenever Wizard of Oz goes on. Uh, no, no, I'm I'm talking about real scarecrows, but huh? the, this movie also does it for me as well. It was directed by Frank D. Filita, <laughs> who yeah, it's a re- it's a real name. It's his real name. Italian. What pro, do you do, we... Frank? Well, I'm Frank yeah. the Filita. I, I <laughs> work at a butcher shop. You know, I fi- I do the fillets. <laughs> you know, this here's uh, this here's Donnie the Riveter. This is the Mike the Baker. <laughs> well, Frank um, didn't have a major contributions to the business other than Dark Knight Scarecrow. He did a movie with Sharon Stone early in her career called Scissors, which was like a thriller. I think that was just before she broke out with Basic Instinct a year later. Please tell me that was before she started doing all the sex stuff. Oh, God. Well, before she started scissoring. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then we have, uh, he also did uh, a movie called ZPG that had Oliver Reed in it. Uh, no, I've not seen it. And uh, I've never known where to find it, to be honest. But he was also the writer of a horror movie, a well-known horror movie called The Entity. Now, I've oh got I want to say Adrian Barbeau, but it's not, is it? No, it's Barbara Hershey. Right. So kind of close in look. Uh, and it was based on the true story of a woman who gets raped continuously by a poltergeist over a number of years. And it was a real case. And it is genuine, a really scary movie. Really terrifying, and if you haven't seen it, you should hunt it down. Um, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow is centered around uh, a mentally challenged uh, man who has a friendship with a young girl. The young girl gets hurt, and everyone in this town believes that it is this man. Uh, so they all, this gang of guys, hunt him down, uh, chase him, and he hides as the Scarecrow in a field. But they find out it's him, and then they murder him while he's in this scarecrow in a really brutal way. And surprise, surprise, he pulls a Freddy. In a way, but it's amazing the way it's done. And because it was a TV movie, they couldn't go full gore or anything. And this relies on really good old-fashioned scares. The scarecrow, everyone's convinced it's, it's coming back to life and it's haunting them. And there's some scenes in there that are genuinely really terrifying. And what's also kind of really weird about it is all of the villains uh, in this movie, and there's people like Lane Smith, Charles Durning is one of them as well. All of the villains, the order in which they die in the film is also the order that they have died in real life as well. Oh, shit. What do you think? This is one of those cursed movies? No, I don't. I, I just think it's it is incredibly strangely weird that how that has kind of happened. And I think there's only two surviving members of that cast left. Wow. And it's just a really effective, chilling movie. And I watched it again last year for the first time since I was a child because I was like, I cannot watch this movie again. And uh, Kate was like, you, you've got to sit and watch it because I want to see it. Let's just watch it. And it was hairs on my arms because I was just revisiting this place from my childhood of this movie that genuinely scared the crap out of me. Mm. As the way horror films that you used to see on ITV or BBC late at night, if you managed to stay up and watch them, they were genuinely scary back then. Yeah. I mean, I had a similar thing with uh, Evil Dead 2. I mean, I wasn't as I wasn't as young as you were when you saw this, but the very first time I saw Evil Dead 2, I was uh, in my uh, early teens, and I went over to a friend of mine's house, and he put it on, and it scared the crap out of me. It properly did. I'd never seen anything that was as terrifying as that at that point. And it properly gave me nightmares for ages. And then a couple of years ago, now that I'm a full-grown adult with responsibilities and all that stuff, I thought, right, okay, I've seen Ash vs. Evil Dead. I really enjoyed that. I've seen Army of Darkness loads of times. I really enjoy that. Let's go back and watch it again. And saw it again. And watching it as an adult, it's so tame. Yeah. Yeah, again, it was it was one of those moments. It's like, no, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to watch this. I'm going to get myself through it. Then by the end of it, it was like, I can't believe I was that scared about this movie. Yeah, well, back in the day, movies like The Amateurville Horror, Poltergeist, even Spielberg's Duel, you mm. know, I'd get a scare out of. You know, they really knew how to do tension and terror back then. The um, Robert Wise black and white version of The Haunting of Hill House is still a terrifying movie to this day. Mm. 
And I saw all these movies as a kid and I was genuinely scared of movies like these back in the day and would do everything to avoid them. And I think I was a teenager before I actually ventured back into horror again. But Dark Knight the Scarecrow is part of a major thing of me as a kid that genuinely, genuinely terrified me. And still to this day, I I find myself shying away from the screen watching it. But it's just an effective horror for me. I think if they can't rely on gore, which is something that Captivity was trying to properly steer into Mm. with some of the visual effects they had in there, then what you are left with is a creative solution to the problem, which then kind of switches everything to suggestion, psychological manipulation to make you not be afraid of having your face melted off by acid, yeah. but be afraid of the creaks that are in your house, the, the, the strange shadows that come across your wall. And if you've got a horror movie which is properly trying to keep all of the splatter out of the way and just focus on terrifying you in using creative ways to put the power of suggestion onto you, then those are the ones which stay with you a lot, lot longer. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's a great point. But uh, Dark Knight the Sacro was released uh, on TV uh, in 1981 on this week. And you can hunt it down. I think the movie might even be available on YouTube. You never know, because they pick up a, a lot of movies that don't have a general release. You could probably find it on there. Mm-hmm. And it is worth watching. Okay, so next, let's go to Cloud Atlas. Uh, oh, uh, wait, no, is this the one with Tom Hanks? Yes, oh, it is. Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> Have you seen Cloud Atlas? No. Yes, the, the challenges I lay myself, it's unbelievable. Well, this was directed by the Wachowskis, who you may know from the Matrix trilogy and that other film that came out after it. I've never heard of it. Uh, yeah. Uh, Bound, which is probably their greatest contribution to cinema other than the first Matrix. Seen the highlights. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I know Bill's laughing at this right now. Um, and also Jupiter Ascending, which is that movie you've already forgotten about or tried to. I, do you want to know, that was one of the reasons why I said, is that the one with Tom Hanks? Because I always get the two of them confused. Yeah, they they do tend to have a similarity when they're doing these science fiction movies. Jupiter Ascending is... I could see the potential in it. I just couldn't see why I was watching it. You know, it's it's nothing stand out, really, which is a shame. It's just one of those big budget movies that just seem to get shot out. Shot out, maybe. Yeah. I keep getting mixed up with um, is it Mortal Engines. Oh, yes, that was... Oh, oh, I can't remember the name of the guy that directed it, but yeah, he was produced by Peter Jackson. Yeah, There was a bunch of movies that just like that that came out all in that same window of each other, and Mm. they were just like, I'm not feeling that blockbuster big movie thrill watching these movies. I just feel like I'm watching a video game being played. Yeah, they all have this kind of similar futuristic steampunk tribal look about them and they're all more yeah. or less interchangeable. Like Valerian, that was the other one. Yeah, which Valerian was and the sit, uh, planet of a thousand cities or whatever it was called. So yeah, it was also co-directed, so the Wachowskis co-directed Cloud Atlas with Tom Twyker, and I hope I've spelled, said his name right. <laughs> so do I. Um, he directed the classic cult movie Run Lola Run mm-hmm. Uh but he also directed Perfume, the Story of Emeria. I'll say that again. Perfume, the Story of... I'm pronouncing my worms. Yes. Um, Perfume, the Story of a Murderer. Got there in the end. One of Neil Priddy's favourite movies. Uh-huh. Uh, also Babylon Berlin as well. Uh, this movie, the Wachowskis probably never would have made if it hadn't have been for Natalie Portman who gave the book to Lana Wachowski. Now, uh, Lana, or I believe it was Larry around the time. Yes. Yes. So they were going through the transition during this movie. Yeah. Okay, which, which was the big story that came out at the time. And Natalie Portman apparently gave the novel to Lana to read. 
and they instantly fell in love with the story of Cloud Atlas. Trying to explain the plot of Cloud Atlas is nigh on impossible. Isn't it something like what was the name of that Hugh Jackman movie? Was it was it the the Wishing Well or something where he was kind of like a time traveler and he was oh the fountain the fountain that where he was kind of like traveling about the place yeah. and he was meeting Ar- Aronofsky's movie yeah uh, no it's something like that oh. um, this is a story that basically utilizes the same characters but throughout something like six or seven different time periods and all of these stories kind of interconnect throughout these portions of history. And it's fascinating. It really is. I did really love this movie. And I was so pleased because Bill gave me his Blu-ray copy of it. And I was like, oh, God, this is amazing. I'm, I'm having this. Because, you know, it's a Warner Brothers movie. Um, but Warner Brothers apparently, and Bill's probably going to pull me up on this, Warner Brothers apparently pulled the financing of this movie over budget concerns, which is... Nothing new in today's Warner Brothers, I guess. <laughs> but um, but back in 2000, I want to say 2013, I think it was, um, generally Warner Brothers was all about, you know, representing the artists, and things like that. So the director... Yeah, that ship has uh, sailed. Yeah, well, well sailed. Yeah, it's going to be interesting six months from now to see what is going to happen. Uh, the directors, uh, they waived their fees and the Wachowskis ended up putting $7 million of their own money in to make this movie and $20 million of the budget came from the German government. Oh, places. Yeah, and, you made the run, not the run. That is very nice, yeah. And Tom Hanks was incredibly enthusiastic about the project and he managed to help raise uh, the rest of the money as well. Oh, now, yeah, you Tom may have read... Is that directed by Paul Verhoeven as well, yeah. <laughs> Yes. Oh, I loved him in The Man with Ron Vetue. Yeah. <laughs> What's in Money Pit? Oh, it's a house, it fall down. Oh. <laughs> were we doing Verhoeven there or are we going back to German? Um, so, interestingly, we, we read recently, uh, Tom Hanks said in an interview he's only ever made about five good movies, which mm. sent uproar because obviously we know he's done a hell of a lot more, but him personally, he only thinks he's done five great movies. And this is one of them. Really? This is one of the films that... Did I say Tom Cruise? I fucking did, didn't I? Um, I'm going to stop back again because I'm pretty sure I said Tom Cruise in there. I don't want to misrepresent and someone think they've missed a Tom Cruise movie. Okay, sorry. Well, Tom Hanks recently in a news interview said he's only really done five good movies. Unlike that he's Tom enjoyed. Yeah. What? Unlike Tom Cruise. Yeah. Unlike Tom Cruise. Yeah. Unlike yeah. Tom Cruise. Um, so you fucking throw me off. Now I'm going to start again. <laughs> Stop it. There's nothing worse than self doubt. Right. <laughs> Get it out of your system. Fuck. I'm just trying to right. make your life interesting. <laughs> no. No. It's not. It's making it more complicated. <laughs> All this is staying in, by the way. I'm sure it is. Right, take fucking three. In a recent news interview, you bastard. <laughs> oh. Yeah, we get, another... the, we get the gist of it. <laughs> he said he's only had five good movies. Apparently, uh, he, cl- he counts Cloud Atlas as one of them. There. Did he say which were the other four? Because no. I'm counting, you know, Saving Private Ryan, Philadelphia, uh, less said about Forrest Gump, the better, uh, Apollo 13, Dragnet, Bachelor Party. You know, come on. I can't believe you seriously just included those ones in his entire huge filmography of classic movies. Yeah, it, it was a joke. You see, you stick like the shit ones on the end. <laughs> okay, all right. Now, I'd, I'd say he's probably going to throw in Castaway. Because I know that he really felt a lot of pride for that movie. Saving Private Ryan will probably be one of them. And I reckon Big. Eh, maybe. It's definitely not going to be, um, was it Larry Crown? Everyone forgot he made that movie. So yeah, Cloud Atlas, I think is a great movie. 
Uh, it really is. It's one it takes a lot of patience for. You really have to sit and watch this movie and soak it all in. Because you walk out of a room, you're going to come back and feel you've missed something, and you probably have. It is a film that you do need to pay attention with and have patience with. And it is so rewarding. And you never really get to see Hugh Grant playing a real villain. But in this, he gets to play that villain seven times. Mm. Seven different iterations of that villain. It's great. Unlike The Matrix Resurrections. Oh, yeah, we just have to forget now. Mm. Oh, you people with your meta shit. Yeah, stop being meta, please. Uh, no one seems to get the point that we come to films for escapism. Why remind us that better films watching... exist? Yeah, yeah, you know, just concentrate on the story you're writing and making. And a person who should have took that advice is the next person on our list of anniversaries. Uh, back in I believe 1998, I think we're going back to here. Mm-hmm. Danny Boyle directed A Life Less Ordinary. Yeah. Uh... You know, I think this is one of the Danny Boyle films that I forget exists. This is the Danny Boyle film that everybody forgets exists. I don't even think Danny Boyle remembers he did this movie. This was Danny Boyle's first foray into kind of a Hollywood movie, uh, into the full mainstream after the success of Shallow Grave, which is an amazing movie. Train Spotting, yeah. of course, iconic. Yeah. Um, years later, he'd do 28 Days Later. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. 127 Hours, brilliant. Slumdog Millionaire, brilliant. And this is the one movie I feel, apart from The Beach, maybe, that is the weakest entry in the Danny Boyle cinematic Wait, canon. did he direct The Beach? I thought that was Alex Garland. No, Alex Garland wrote it. Oh, right. I, yeah. Really? I didn't realise that he directed The Beach. Yeah, I guess that's the other one people try and forget. Huh. It's It's not a great movie. Um, it's a movie, it's just not a great movie and A Life Less Ordinary is not a great movie either, it is a movie that has this violent clash of tones, it doesn't seem to know exactly what kind of movie it wants to be mm-hmm. because you look at it and you think okay, there's, there's a bit romantic comedy here, but this has a bit of a Tarantino-y kind of vibe as well, it's Ewan McGregor again, so mm-hmm. it's just like falling back on the same actor that he's already used twice to great effect, and I can understand why they do it. Uh, Cameron Diaz in a role that was originally planned for Julia Roberts. And it was just uneasy. I remember seeing it and I was like, this this isn't the best. And every director has that movie, you know, that was an experiment and didn't work. I believe this is Danny Boyle's experiment that didn't work. What's the plot because about? Remind me. I don't even remember. That's that's wow. the strange thing about it. If you don't remember it then, oh my god, it must have been confusing as hell. No, it, it's just kind of forgettable. And I'm not saying that in a very negative way. It's just not a movie that stands out. The one thing that I can remember about it is uh, British comic book 2000 AD actually did a comic book adaptation of this movie. Uh, I think it was something like three to six issues. What? Really? Yeah, but I, that still puzzles me as to why, and I think obviously it was just, you know, this British-Brit film phenomenon that was going on at the time. For some reason, I don't know why, I really don't. Um, I keep thinking of Eternal Sunshine. I, I, oh, I, of The Spotless Mind? Yeah, I know that the two are completely different films. Yeah. But because I can't remember anything about A Life Less Ordinary, in my head, it just keeps swapping it with all the weirdness that's in that film. It's a strange thing because I remember Faithless did the song Don't Leave For It. And from what I can remember, Cameron Diaz is kidnapped. She's the daughter of Ewan McGregor's boss. And there's some kind of subplot where there's two angels that are sent to Earth uh, to check if love is possible between these two people. And that's what I can kind of remember. It's very offbeat. Right. Right? It it is a very strange movie. I mean, it's got a great cast. Any movie with Holly Hunter in, usually I'm like, this is going to be amazing. Holly Hunter, is to me, is possibly the greatest actress ever. Turn the rat! Yeah, you've got Stanley Tucci in there, who is gold in anything you put him mm. in. You can put him in the worst mm. movie in the world. 
he'll be he'll be great in it. And you know you've got a, a great supporting cast in there uh, of a mixture of English and American names, but it's just so unmemorable. And I think that is the major problem. And I think a lot of people would agree. And you you toss this up there, uh, the beach, and a life less ordinary. And I think it'd be hard. But people remember the beach, not for the right reasons. You know, people remember no, him for but, like the. But you can't remember what the plot is, and you can remember the trailer. I can't remember anything majorly about this movie, and I only watched it this week. You know, for you, a catch up. you just brought up Faithless. Don't leave. Yeah. I've just remembered Pure Shores by All Saints. Yes, for the beach. Yeah. Take me to my beach. <laughs> Better song than the film. Yeah. I mean, there's people who do like this movie and people who don't. I'm just on the the shelf of being like, it wasn't a memorable movie. It just didn't tick the boxes for me. It's just a movie. And... I really love Danny Boyle's style, and I love his movies. You know, even when he does something like sci-fi, like Sunshine, far left field for him to go and do mm-hmm. a sci-fi movie with Pierre Goldies, and it's a brilliant movie. You know, twenty-eight days later for a zombie movie, brilliant movie. Well, I did read an interview, or it might have been on TV. Something I've I've definitely seen some kind of an interview with him, and he was saying that he never likes to do the same kind of film twice. Yeah, he's he always like the, likes to the try Coens and, in that way. Yeah, he always, like you say, he starts off with the very, very dark black comedy of Shallow Grave, and then you've got the gritty uh, urban exploitation-ish film in Train Spotting. Then, if you look at it, he mutates and grows, and you've got the sci-fi, you've got the horror, then you've got the romantic comedy, then you've got the drama, and he's constantly changing what it is that he does. And he was on. Uh, Top Gear was yeah. being interviewed about being the star in the reasonably priced car back when it was good, um, and he said that he's no matter what it is that he does, his dad always says it's not as good as Shallow Grave. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, I can I can fully understand that. I mean, I was introduced uh, with Danny Boyle with Shallow Grave, mm. so I, I so saw his that, debut yeah. and I was like, this is genius. So Train Spotting, the book they said could never be made into a movie. And it was the, one of the biggest, well, I'd say British films. It's a Scottish movie. But um, it's one of the biggest films of 96. Yeah, it, it was huge. It was everywhere. I mean, I, I, I think it was a good two years after the film came out before I actually got to see it. But even I had the poster. Yeah. You know, that iconic it, poster with the orange writing. It, it was massive. It was just a genius. That, that film must have made more money. And it was an independent Mm-hmm. You know, but it must have made so much ridiculous amounts of money, and that was what really ushered in the um, Cool Britannia movement because that was right up there with the Cool Britannia movement of the nineties, that sadly just ended up dying in the early two thousands. Yeah. It, it was a period of life, damn it! It, it was, was a great period. It was, and I think that's why I miss the nineties so much because there was just this huge surge and resurgence in British popular culture from the music to the movies to the fashions to the political statements New Labour came out, everyone was saluting his toniness as being the greatest thing since sliced bread, oh my god it's incredible yay it, I, was, I was at college, I was getting drunk legally for the first time it was fantastic and it, it was almost everything we did was part of this huge movement Yeah, and you know, the Spice Girls James Bond, bang. It was everything. Every single thing that was putting out. TGI, and TFI Friday. T- oh, God. We could do an entire show just on this. But oh, God, yeah. A Life Less Ordinary kind of came out at that point where it was like, look at Danny Boyle, and this is obviously his transforming out of the Cool Britannia and mixing into the Hollywood. And every director in the UK was, you know, had hits and that have gone and done it. But this felt so disjointed and it wasn't a case of we were so wrapped up in Danny Boyle, the guy from Slumdog and and the mega huge train spotting thing where we think every movie that he's going to do is going to be train spotting it was just so tonally off that I was surprised when I looked back this week and discovered it was a Danny Boyle film Mm. I'd forgotten 
uh, it was kind of just blanked out of that's the the kind of way that you blank f- four rooms out of Quentin Tarantino's CV. Yeah, well, to be fair, he wasn't the only director responsible for that one. So, oh come on, he he was so behind bringing everyone involved on that. Yeah. Right, that was Tarantino wanting to do that movie and saying, "Okay, I, but I want to do it with these three friends of mine, these directors, and make this experimental movie." And it's just a horrible experience to go through. Great but, song for the closing credits, though. Oh yeah, it did have a great song for the closing yeah. credits. Yeah, but yeah, a life less ordinary. I just couldn't get on board with it. Um. And even when watching it again, it was like, did I just judge this wrong when I saw it? And no, it it still feels uh, a miss. And I think it was a hit. I think it did pretty well. It was still within, you know, the British culture and Ewan McGregor and, you know, had Ian McNeese in there. It was usually very reliable. Just didn't work. No. Well, not everyone can score a goal all the time. No. Uh, Well, that's the anniversaries. Yes. Quite right. weird. We we got a few of them in there. Yes, we, and and uh, you know, more upon them than usual. Uh, but uh, that means that we've got one last segment, and brace yourself, folks. You're not going to like it. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Ah, uh, what's in the box? And seeing as though it is Bonfire Night or Guy Fawkes Day or whatever you want to call it, the only thing that's truly going to blow up in your face is the movie that we're going to pull out of the box this week. But while we're there, talk to us about what's in the box while I reach in. Okay, well, Andy's having a good rummage. I'll fill you in. Uh, what's in the box is the part of the show where Andy's going to put his hand into a box and pull out the name of a movie, which in this case is going to be certified rotten on Rotten Tomatoes, i.e. valued at 25% or lower critic score. Now, if I have seen it, he's going to keep pulling out names of movies until he's found one that I haven't seen, and then I go away and I watch that the day before we record our next podcast. Simple. Yes. We may have to go back to good movies at some point, though. <laughs> well, to be fair, this has kind of been an interesting balance. Mm. Because we, we found something to generally defend on a lot of movies, and this week is the first time we've not been able to defend no. the What's in the Box Challenge. Because it really is, it really was that bad. Uh, it's going to be interesting for next week, though, if you've not seen this movie already. Yeah, because I don't, I don't think up until last week... We'd had any movies that you pulled out first time around that I'd already seen. True. So let's see what we got. Okay. Well, we ha- we're stepping out of horror, which is good. Phew. Uh, have you seen the movie, the Keanu Reeves starring Forty Seven Ronin? But he's no man. Ah. Oh. Well, th- this will be interesting actually because this is one that's been critically mauled. Yeah. But. I really liked it. So. I I do know that it was less kind of Keanu Reeves starring while they were making it, and then more Keanu Reeves starring after they needed to do reshoots. So I know that much. But uh, uh, okay, well, okay. go in with a blank mind, watch as a movie, and at the end of the day, do you enjoy it? You know, do you find something good, or is the uh, the rotten rating just a load of shit? Or is the movie generally bad? Well, that's what we're here to find out from the Everyman Steve, and that's what we are doing next week. 47 yes. Ronin. It's going to be interesting, because I'm going to be a full defender of this movie. So, Are you a fan? I am, actually. I, I really did enjoy this movie. Okay. Well, it, it's going to be interesting, because I've seen this in Tesco DVD aisle, which they're phasing out of now, and it's, it's, you know, it's they're taking away the enjoyment of wondering the shelves and seeing... All the straight to DVD stuff, you know. Well, it's been shot in Derby. Yeah. <laughs> All that <laughs> shite. Yes. Okay. Anyway. <clears throat> anyway. Yeah. So uh, let's sign up for this week. Uh, yes. We've got 47 Ronin for next week. We do have a video episode. <laughs> a lot of muted video episodes that we still 
have trouble trying to do. It's a busy part of the year. It is. Um, and a lot of the people that have contacted do have jobs on, so trying to get their schedules and our schedules together. But we do have a bill episode coming up where we can find out how we recovered from visiting Weatherspoons. And uh, we're coming back to Manchester ever again. <laughs> we have uh, Two Dick Rick joining us. Uh, Rick Ravenello, he's coming back for another episode. We're hopefully going to catch up with John Ashton again real soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, dying to hear how uh, Beverly Hills Cop 4 went. And I'm sure we're also going to be having Jonas back at some point to get him to round up what he's seen. We, we definitely need to do that because there I've seen some of the stuff that he has written on his movie reviews and uh, he's not been happy with some movies this past <laughs> month. <laughs> All the better. All the better. Okay, well... Uh, I'm out of here. Okay. Uh, and it's also time for me to go as well. So it's a goodbye from me. And I'll see you next week also. Bye. Told you you should have watched Saw 4.